N as in nothing. It stands for Rape, Abuse, Incest, National Network. So think of the rain coming down, but with two ends at the end. If you want to explore these numbers and their implications, just go to rain.org and you will find the information there. I also want to take my hat off, if I had one, and do a shout out for the graduate students at Columbia University in New York City. They went out on strike at the beginning of November of this year, the second time this year they've had to do that. And I want folks to understand, most American major universities, private and public, have ceased being primarily educational institutions and have become copycats of capitalist, profit-driven institutions. That's why they've jacked up the prices far beyond uh, the cost of living, the price of an education. That's why they've plunged an entire generation of people into debts they cannot pay in the rest of their lives. And that's why they also abuse the graduate students that they hire to do a great deal of the work, including teaching. And so the students increasingly are fighting back, going on strike. And the students at Columbia have done it twice this year. They deserve everyone's support, and I want to give it right here and right now. This is also the last show of this program on this year. Don't worry, we're coming right back next month. But I wanted to give a little summary in honor of this last program, and I want to recognize that the picture, the political picture we deal with, is very mixed. It's full, in the language I like, of contradictions, ways things are looking up and ways things are looking down. And I don't want to pretend it's one or the other. It's both. Here's some downsides that you all know and that we've been talking about all year. The disappointment of the Biden administration, now a full year into its government, had led to such hopes that the passing of the Trump horror would lead to a brand new world. Wow, has the Democratic Party establishment disappointed us, failing to fight for what they even proposed, which was too modest to begin with. Another downside, the persistence of the GOP Trump phenomena. Another downside, the pandemic and all that it has cost us. The deepening inequality that seems to be a kind of death trip of the American economy. And now the inflation that worsens the inequality. And those supply shocks, that wonderful phrase that covers the failure of this system to even deliver cream cheese uh, to the people at the end of the year who need it. And there's a big depression among people that reflects all of this. But then there's also the upside, quickly. Worker militancy in this country has reached altogether new heights compared to anything I've seen in decades in this country. People quitting jobs because it's not acceptable to be treated this way anymore. Wow. People going on strike like those Columbia University graduate students. Worker militancy rising all over the place. And with it, it's now possible to criticize the capitalist system that is the cover for all of this. 
And that's possible in a way it wasn't for a long time. I want to cite that we ended the war in Afghanistan, a crazy prospect, a crazy project. It came to an end. And for the troops there, for the people there, the horror of a 20-year occupation that failed is over. And that's a plus, too, that it's over. And then there were those elections in Germany. You may have missed those, in which the number one political party in Germany was the Socialist Party, which has now formed a new socialist government in Europe's strongest economy. And if I may say it modestly, here's economic update. It's part of the upside because we've gained over 100,000 YouTube subscribers during this year. And that's an amazing achievement. And I want to thank all of you who watch, who sign up, who follow us. You are our partners. We could not do this without your support. And I don't just mean in your letters, your financial supports, and so on. I mean in your solidarity, which is what encourages us and enables us to do this work. Thank you. Okay, let's go to the updates that we have for today. I want to begin answering questions that many of you have sent me during the year. And this one is interesting. Many of you have wanted to know what you've heard, whether what you've heard is true about Cuba and COVID-19. And my basic answer is yes. Here are the statistics for Cuba at the end of 2021. It has vaccinated over 90% of the population. That's nearly double the rate of the United States. And to keep the idea in, in perspective, the United States has 330 million people population. Cuba has 12 million people. It is three and a half percent of the population of the United States. Cuba produced its own vaccine. This little country, it's called Soberana, and it's a system of three injections, three jabs, three doses, and if you get them, Here's the statistic validated by the World Health Organization, 92% effective. You will not go to a hospital even if you get COVID-19. That's what the vaccine delivers. Cuba now exports that vaccine to six that I could verify countries. There may be more, but they are now an exporter of the vaccine they themselves, this little country, developed. And they have had 8,000 deaths. That works out to one-third the percentage of their population compared to the rich United States. One-third the rate of death of the U.S. That is the performance. And if you would like more information, all of this information is taken from a global science magazine that many of you know of called Nature. Just go to nature.com and you can find it. I want to turn next in an update to France. I want to tell you about what's happening in France because of the light it sheds on the problems of capitalism everywhere in the world, including the United States. French politics has been shaken up recently 
by the rise of a new right-wing political actor who has declared that he is joining the race for president. That election in France is scheduled for April of 2022, so it's four months away. His name is Eric Zemmour, Z-E-M-M-O-U-R. He's a TV broadcaster, you know, sort of like Trump was a TV character. He's currently polling around 13 to 14 percent in the polls in France about who you're going to vote for in the presidential election. Here's what he's most famous for. His comments about immigrants in France. Quote, I'm quoting now from CN News, that's a major French broadcaster. Quote, immigrants are thieves, comma, murderers, comma, rapists, semicolon. That's all they are. Okay, should sound familiar starting a political career by a big speech in which you call poor immigrants, because that's who comes to France, names. The only current candidate for president, and there are seven or eight of them in France, the only one who polls higher right now than Mr. Zemmour is the other right-wing candidate, Marina Le Pen, and the president of France, Mr. Emmanuel Macron. Now, let's take a look, because there's the lesson. What is going on? Well, here's the first interesting thing that foreshadows something I suspect is coming here, too. The split in the right wing. The right wing has been dominated by Marina Le Pen. She was the great right wing leader, anti-immigrant, all the usual. She's done something interesting re recently because she kept losing the national election to whoever was in the middle or the left. She moved to the left. Marina Le Pen is now in favor of lowering the retirement age in France. She's supporting rising wages in France. Mr. Zemmour doesn't want any of that. He's a big neoliberal. He wants to lower taxes on corporations. He's the big business right-winger. She's the popular right-winger, and they're splitting the right wing. Gee, maybe we can see something coming down the pike from Mario Rubio, or maybe Josh Hawley, or maybe all the other Republicans who are going to figure this out. Maybe not as quick as the French, but they'll get the idea. Then there's a second thing. Mr. Macron is polling around a quarter of the votes in France. A quarter of the people want to vote for him. Let me put that another way. Three quarters of the French people don't want him, want someone else. You can govern a country like France with one quarter of the people supporting you, and that's not unusual either. And now why is that interesting? Well, here we go. There are four left-wing parties in France, each of them with a presidential candidate. I'm going to go through them with you and then tell you what they add up to if they were ever to get together. The Socialist Party, a very big party in France for most of the last 
half century or even century. Currently, the mayor of Paris, a woman named Anne Hidalgo, is a Socialist Party leader. But they're only polling 5% in the presidential. Further to the left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is his name. He gets 10%. The Greens get 7%. The Communists are there. Four parties, Socialist, Far Left, Green, and Communist. Together, they get a percentage larger vote than Mr. Macron does. He polls, as I said, 23, 24. They're pushing 24, 25. If the left got together, they would have a quarter of the support. They could run this society. What the French left can't do is get itself together and develop a clear vision. And that ought to surprise nobody because that's the problem of the American left as well. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. And as always, I want to thank all of you as I did earlier. You make this show possible. To learn more about the different ways you can do that, please go to patreon.com slash economic update or visit our website, democracyatwork.info. We've also recently released a new hardcover edition of Understanding Marxism, and it is available now. To get your copy of this new edition or other books, please again visit our website, democracyatwork.info slash books. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. My first update in this second half has to do with manufacturing jobs and manufacturing as a sector of the American economy. Starting with Ronald Reagan, every president in the United States has been telling us that we are in trouble because our manufacturing keeps shrinking and they starting with Mr. Reagan, they're going to turn all that around. Republicans promise it. Democrats promise it. The winners of the presidential election promise it. The losers promise it. It's a constantly repeated promise that every single president has failed to deliver on. This is important because it raises the question, what is going on? Well, the number of manufacturing jobs peaked in this country in 1979, just before Mr. Reagan got into office and made the promise he failed to keep. What is it today? Well, I looked it up. And manufacturing workers in the United States today, who are not supervisors and not people who are executives, they're called in the language of economics, uh, production non-supervisory workers. Get ready. 20 million in 1979, eight and a half million today. Okay? So the United States has 330 million people in it. Eight and a half million of them work in any kind of manufacturing. We produce lots more than we did in 1979, but we've destroyed the jobs. The jobs aren't there. We've replaced the manufacturing jobs with machines. Okay, let's take a look at it. Who made this happen? Who shrank the manufacturing sector in America? 
who did those things which made liars out of every one of our presidents since they undid what these presidents had promised to do. Okay, workers didn't do this. Why not? Well, workers in manufacturing were among the best paid in this country. They had no incentive to get rid of these jobs. Quite the contrary. Many of them hoped to give their sons and daughters the jobs they had occupied, which, by the way, they often got from their parents, because these were well-paying, secure, long-lasting jobs. Workers didn't do this. You know who else didn't do this? The government. The government has no incentive to remove manufacturing jobs. Not at all. It gets blamed for it enough that that would be a reason alone. We do know who did it. Employers did it. They're the ones who made the decision to close the factory in Cincinnati and move it to Shanghai, to close the factory in Pennsylvania and move it to India etc., etc. The manufacturing jobs left, and we all know why. Because you could pay people in India and China a small fraction of, of the wages you had to pay an American. And the other thing American employers did, because who else does it, they decided to replace workers with machines. Because it's more profitable to have a machine than to pay a worker, especially a worker who gets well paid. So we know who did this, who made a liar out of the presidents of this country. It was profit-driven capitalist employers who did this. Now, of course, they like to blame the workers. The workers' wages were so high. Really? What you wanted the American working class to do was what? Accept the wages that exist in China and India? That was the price of your staying? No wonder the workers gave you the finger and you in turn did the favor back by leaving, didn't you? So yeah, we have a problem with a very small manufacturing sector. But let's be crystal clear why it happened, and who made the decision. Not workers, not the government, not the target of the libertarians, not the target of the corporate bosses. No, 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 no. You know, and I know, and let's think about what that means. My next update has to do with the first labor management blow-up since 1994, and where is it? among some of the highest paid workers in this country. Isn't that interesting? The class struggle, the fight between the employer and the employee happens at the lowest level, you know, the fast food joint that won't pay you 15 bucks an hour, and it happens at the highest level. And in this case, Major League Baseball. What happened in Major League Baseball early in December was a lockout. Very important that everybody understands what a lockout is. It comes from a long history in the United States. It's when the employer locks the door so the workers can't get into the workshop. They can't get into the factory, the office, or the store because the door is locked. That's where the phrase lockout comes. So there isn't any baseball going on. 
No negotiations, no practice in the gym, none of it. But that's not because the workers struck. That's different. That's a strike. It's because the employers want to terrorize the workers. They want to say, hey, we're closing. And maybe when spring training comes around, we'll stay closed. Because if we don't start the season, we don't pay you at all. Whoa, now let's take a look what's going on. Here's the facts you need to know. Over the last 17 years, up until 2019, I stopped there because there was no season in 2020 because of the COVID-19. But for the 17 years up until 2019, Major League Baseball had larger revenues each year than the year before. They are doing really well. And who are they? The owners of baseball teams. And who are they? They're among the less than a thousand billionaires that this country has. That's right. The richest of the rich. They're getting more and more money. Meanwhile, let's take a look at the workers. And I want to give you these numbers exactly. On opening day, April 2021, the average Major League Baseball player's salary was 4.8% lower than it was on opening day of 2019. Since the 2017 season, average Major League Baseball player salary has fallen 6.14%. So rising revenue for billionaires on one side and falling average salary for the player on the other side. And guess what? The negotiations aren't going well. You know why? Because the owners want to keep the contracts the way they are and just sign them to continue. No surprise there. They're making money hand over fist, these billionaires, while declining the income of the player. And after all, we don't go to the game to watch the owner, do we? Because usually kind of fat and out of shape. We go to watch the players. So the employer, to keep this hustle going, is sticking it to the workers by locking them out. Make no mistake when you hear the public relations that they are paying big bucks on because they don't want it exposed what they are doing. You see, the class struggle between workers and employers is everywhere in this system, whether you're paid a lot or a little or somewhere in between. That's why we say, sure, help those who are not getting paid enough. But it's the system that's the problem. And it's your problem whether you're paid a lot or a little. The sooner we realize that, the sooner we can do something about it. My last update that I'll have time for today is, a, is an example of the kind of hypocrisy that this country now is drowning in. And I felt because of the particular hypocrisy it is that the Christmas season would be the right moment to talk about it with you. So here's what happened early in December. A person from whom we don't expect much, and who has never disappointed us in this regard, said something extraordinarily stupid. Who am I talking about? Mitt, as in catchers, Mitt Romney, 
a former Republican candidate for president who now represents the state of Utah in the Senate. He exhibited a selective example of Christian morality that was so stunning it caught my attention, and I want to make sure it catches yours. He attacked the CEO of the biggest hedge fund in the world. That man's name is Ray Dalio, D-A-L-I-O, a very intelligent fellow, by the way, who periodically makes very interesting, well-researched statements from which Mr. Romney could learn much, but clearly hasn't. He attacked Ray Dalio. By the way, his firm is called Bridgewater Associates, if you're interested. And here's what he attacked Ray Dalio for in this Christmas season. He accused Ray Dalio of, you'll love this, a moral lapse, a moral lapse. And what was the moral lapse that Ray Dalio had committed in Mr. Mitt Romney's mind? I'm being generous here. It turns out that Bridgewater Associates, during November of this year, had raised money, that's what hedge funds do, for a big investment in the People's Republic of China. And here was Mitt Romney beating his breast for the Uyghur people and for the citizens of Hong Kong who have suffered at the hands of the People's Republic of China, said Mitt Romney. And how, how could Ray Dalio, as we head into Christmas, be so morally lapsed that he would raise money for China? Mr. Dalio, who is, in fact, smart, retaliated quickly and made several points which everybody in this business knows. A, everybody in this business is making investments in China. Goldman Sachs just recently invested a huge ton. So did many other investment banks. And the reason they do that, Mr. Dalio reminded Mr. Romney, is because it's profitable it's more profitable to invest in China than almost anywhere else. And that's what they're in the business to do, make profits, because that's what they were taught in business school, Mitt Romney. So I did a little research because, you know, Mitt Romney used to work for hedge funds. Most of his life, that's what he's done. And the one he's associated with is Bain, B-A-I-N, based in Boston, where he used to be based because he was the governor in Massachusetts, and I found a delicious little factoid. Back in March of this year, Bain Capital, Mr. Romney's firm, made a $200 million investment in the People's Republic of China because it was profitable. And this was long after all the news about the Uyghurs and all the news about Hong Kong was well known around the world. So what is Mr. Romney doing singling out Ray Dalio? He's looking for headlines. He's probably thinking of running for president. The hypocrisy of a man who lives the world of profit all his life and profits from it, wanting suddenly to call some selected other for doing what his firm and every other one does, 
That's the kind of gross hypocrisy our political leaders practice daily. Thank you for your attention to this program, to us all year round. It is a pleasure doing this work, and we value you as partners. And very much, I look forward to talking with you again next week. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Green Store in Belfast, helping to support Community Solar and Sierra Club Maine. Details at greenstore.com. WERU listeners and supporters are a diverse community with all kinds of backgrounds, beliefs, ethnicities, and likes and dislikes. People say they're drawn to WERU's diverse music and public affairs programming produced by members of their communities, their own friends and neighbors. We are grateful for the opportunity to be the voice of many voices that presents this diversity. Thank you, listeners and supporters, for allowing us to do that. We invite you to go online to WERU.org, check out the services and info we have there, and sign up for Loud and Clear, our audience newsletter. And if you would like to make a year-end gift, you can contribute there as well. Or you can mail a check to WERU, P.O. Box 170, East Orland, Maine, 04431. From everyone at WERU, our wishes for a safe and happy holiday season. Hi, I'm Barry Vogel, host of Radio Curious. In this edition, we take a look at murder, getting away with murder. In the small island kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific, about 1,500 miles north of New Zealand, an American Peace Corps volunteer murdered another American Peace Corps volunteer in October of 1976. With the help of a lawyer and a psychiatrist provided by the U.S. government, the murderer was found to be insane and returned to the United States, where he went free and still lives in Brooklyn, New York, working for the Social Security Administration. The book, An American Taboo, A Murder in the Peace Corps, by Philip Weiss, is a detailed story about that murder, how and why it happened, the legend that developed around the murder, the subsequent cover-up by the Peace Corps, and an interview with the murderer. I met with Philip Weiss and asked him to tell the story of an American taboo, a murder in the Peace Corps. Philip Weiss, welcome to Radio Curious. I'm really happy to be here. What was it in your travels that got you to cross the line as a journalist to decide that American Taboo is a book that you wanted to write? I think that it preceded my travels to Tonga. By the time I was traveling to Tonga, I was committed to writing this book. I spent 17 years thinking about this book without doing a thing about it. How did you learn about it? Why so long? Uh, I was a young man when I learned about it, and I learned about the case as a legend in 1978. It was a legend in much the way that uh, there's a legend in New York that there are alligators living in the sewers. I had heard about this murder, a vicious murder in Tonga, when I was traveling through Samoa. 
and there were no names attached. There was just some story about the Peace Corps having a lot of trouble with local governments. But why this? What what drew your attention to this episode as a journalist? I learned this legend in my first foreign country. When I was 22, my first travels in the world, I learned about a, a murder that involves a triangle, a love triangle, in Polynesia, Americans in Polynesia. This was, for a young man, romantic material. I have always worked at being a writer, and I could never get that story out of my head. It's one thing to have a story in your head and another to dedicate several years of your life to uncovering it. The moment when the story changed for me is when, at long last, I met the mother of Deborah Gardner, who is the girl who dies in the book. And when I met Alice in Tacoma, I, and uh, that is, the, I, I met her a day after seeing her daughter's photograph for the first time. These events became real for me as a journalist and as a writer. They had been sort of romantic, Somerset Mom, Herman Melville, whatever, South Seas fantasy, until I saw Deborah's photograph. I had a real sense of who this person was, a 70s traveler like myself, uh, an adventurer, that was in those photographs, uh, an open person, an idealistic person. And then the next day, I met her mother at last, and the devastation that this had caused and the degree of lack of resolution that this had caused and the fact that she didn't even know that her daughter's killer had gone free. Well, tell us what happened. What are the guts of the story? The guts of the story are that in 1976... In a remote posting of the Peace Corps, Nuku'alofa, the capital of the Kingdom of Tonga, where there were 50-odd volunteers in this small Pacific capital who socialized with one another, one volunteer became obsessed with another romantically. The volunteer who became fixated was a 24-year-old from Brooklyn named Dennis Priven. The object of his fixation was a 23-year-old volunteer from Tacoma, Debbie Gardner. He stalked her. The Peace Corps ignored signs that he was going off the rails. And finally, on October 14, 1976, he stabbed her 22 times at her hut. Neighbors took her to a hospital. She died. And Dennis turned himself into police that night. He faced possible hanging, and the Peace Corps then threw itself behind Dennis, uh, did everything it could to get him off the island, and achieved that end so that four months later, Dennis was walking free back in Brooklyn and was getting a new passport and had a clean bill of discharge from the Peace Corps completion of service. But wasn't that a substantive change of Peace Corps policy. At that time, volunteers lived under the laws of the host country. And here we have someone who you show in your book to have committed the crime of murder. And the Peace Corps came and provided him what? Counsel from New Zealand, 1,500 miles away, and a psychiatrist from Hawaii, you know, 4,000 miles away, and there was no psychiatrist in the kingdom to counter the testimony of 
the American psychiatrist. To answer your question, it was a change of Peace Corps policy, inasmuch as Peace Corps policy has been that volunteers must suffer the consequences of their actions locally. That This was a change. I think that what uh, kicked in here was a strong protective impulse on the part of the American government. The Peace Corps program in Tonga was at risk. The uh, American image in Polynesia was at risk. Peace Corps image in the United States was at risk. It was a horrifying case. And you had a young disturbed man in a primitive Polynesian jail facing hanging for killing a beautiful young woman, American woman. It was good for no one, this case. That is how the American government looked at it, or the middle-level officials who were the only ones who really considered this case. That's how they looked at it. It's just a tremendous potential embarrassment. Everything must be done to smooth it over. Are you saying, then, that it was not a conscientious change of the Peace Corps policy? First... Peace Corps might argue that the defense of a volunteer was policy, so that they were only following policy in providing a defense to a volunteer. That was allowed under policy. I think that what we are talking about is actually consistent with American policy or the policy of any superpower throughout the ages, and that is to cover its behind when something terrible happens overseas. You see it in the missing case in uh, Chile in the 70s. You see it in the Rainbow Warrior case in New Zealand where in the 80s where the French government pulls a, a killer out of New Zealand, protects a killer because it wants to protect its nuclear program in the South Seas. In this case, the American government, mid-level officials, I, I keep, continue to assert that because I think if this had come to the level of political officials, higher officials, they would have said, what, what kind of business is this? No, 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 no. It never got to their attention. But uh, to return to the point, mid-level officials felt that we have to protect the American image and the image of the Peace Corps. Well, are you, are you implying then that the higher officials would have said that Dennis Priven would have had to have uh, suffered a punishment for killing Debbie Gardner? The real issue from a legal standpoint in this case to my way of thinking, well, there are several issues, but the real issue here is on what terms was Dennis brought back to the United States following an insanity verdict in Tonga. And he was brought back after um, a casual letter full of lies was presented to the Prime Minister by our State Department. That was irregular. It was offensive. It, and it just, it was crazy. I have the naive, perhaps, but optimistic belief that if public officials had known about this case, they would have insisted on a treaty with Tonga before Dennis was brought back so that Dennis would have been incarcerated back here. The whole thing was so irregular and so seat of the pants that the Peace Corps on Dennis, Dennis was brought back to Washington. He refused to go into a hospital. He was supposed to go into a hospital. He refused to go in. Peace Corps calls the Washington City Police in D.C. to say, we have a killer walking around headquarters. Is there anything we can do about it? And the Washington police laugh at them. There's no, they have no power over him. And that is what is a, 
I mean, there were many things wrong with the handling of this case, but that was crazy. If political officials had been involved, they would have said, no, we're not bringing this guy back with uh, after you give a, a letter full of lies to the Tongan prime minister. What happened in the trial? What happened in Tonga? During the trial, the American government, at Dennis's defense, presented evidence from a psychiatrist, by a psychiatrist from Hawaii, that Dennis was a paranoid schizophrenic. This testimony was translated into Tongan for a jury of farmers, a Tongan farmers who did not speak English, as anga'ua, basically double-minded. Dennis, I believe, was highly disturbed, dissociated individual. He he, I don't think he would have satisfied insanity defense uh, in any jurisdiction in the United States. I think that he's a lot like a lot of uh, murderers, that he's uh, a very disturbed person, but that he knew uh, to a great extent what he was doing and knew that it was wrong when he was doing it. Having said that, uh, this testimony went unchallenged. There was no counter-testimony. And the jury went out for 15 minutes and said that he was insane when he did it, when he committed the act. And then you relate in your book, American Taboo, A Murder in the Peace Corps, the comments that Dennis had to his lawyer. When the verdict was handed down, Dennis turned to his lawyer and said, thank you very much, with a big smile on his face. And this has troubled the lawyer to this day, 24 eight years later. He thinks that he had presented the case thinking that Dennis was crazy. And here was this person who uh, seemed very rational and uh, aware of exactly what was happening and connected with reality. And it stunned the, the attorney. This is the question that has bedeviled a lot of people who knew Dennis. He was a very rational person, the best poker player on the island, very calm person and methodical. Not calm, but intense and methodical. And they could never sort out whether he was really crazy or just uh, actually calculating. And that type of confusion is at the heart of the book with respect to his personality. I want you to tell us more about that confusion, but first I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Philip Weiss about his new book called American Taboo, A Murder in the Peace Corps, a story about one Peace Corps volunteer murdering another in the Kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific in 1976. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Philip this confusion that you talk about? Well, I met Dennis in September of 2002, and he declined to help me with this book. That was the substance of our encounter. We spent three hours together with him trying to figure out whether he was going to help me, and he declined to help me unless I waited until 2007 to publish the book, uh, which I was not willing to do. Why did he want you to wait? Dennis stated at the start of my encounter that uh, our exchange would be off the record, uh, or, or, or everything he told me, he said, would be off the record. Uh, he did. I did say something about the terms he offered, uh, the 2007 terms, because he told me I could tell my publisher, I'm not 
really going to fill that in publicly except that uh, he felt a certain degree of security that he would have in 2007 he would not have before then and wanted me to wait uh, for those selfish reasons for himself. Why did you choose to honor his request that what he told you was off the record? I guess that I felt that I had looked him in the eye. Well, you don't look Dennis in the eye. He doesn't look anybody in the eye. But I felt that I had, uh, it was a sort of a human connection. There were things about him I liked. He has a, a, a wonderful mind in a lot of ways. He's a brilliant man whose talents were blighted by this episode, and he never got to recover from it, I think. I think he spent his life just trying to escape the consequences of what he did that night. To return to your question. I said that I wasn't going to use it. It was off the record, and uh, I've honored off the record with high statesmen and low statesmen and... Um, murderers. And murderers, too. Yeah. You spent several hours with him walking up and down the avenues of New York City. What was your impression of Dennis Priven, who he was and what he was trying to do with you when you were trying to extract from him... Uh, his innermost secrets of what happened that night years before? My impression was of a brilliant, humorous, and deeply disturbed person. The key moment, I think, in the exchange was at the end when I was showing him photographs of uh, all the photographs I'd collected or some of the photographs I'd collected in preparing this account. I flipped through several pictures of Deb Gardner, and he was expressionless as I did so. He had told someone after killing her, several weeks after killing her, he had said she deserved it. And I felt that he had preserved that feeling 28, 27 years later. He still thought she deserved it. Uh, he just looked at these pictures with impassivity. Then we came to a photograph of Paul Boucher, a good friend of his, a fellow Peace Corps volunteer who visited him in prison regularly and who actually accompanied him back to the United States at the end of the case, a dear friend. And Dennis lost it. He got up, he held up his hand, he walked away down the street, he was overcome with emotion. And I just thought, what a monster. He, he's still thinking about himself. And uh, that degree of sort of self-obsession uh, is is pathological. It's it's psychopathic rather than it doesn't fall into the category of ordinary human responses. So I felt great pity and also uh, some condemnation of him. He's never gotten to uh, expiate this horrible thing that he did, and the government failed to give him the opportunity, and he has not taken the opportunity. I called on him to express remorse to apologize, to ask forgiveness. He declined these opportunities. How had the government given him the opportunity? Or how could the government have given him the opportunity? I feel that if the government had dealt with this, with this, in, with this case in an uh, upstanding manner, that Dennis would have spent a lot of time in an institution. And uh, institutional life, uh, he might have, uh, he, he would leave institutional life with some sense that he had done his time and maybe he could have gotten new life from that maybe he would have been forced to uh, uh, seek remorse during that process but in any case I think that there might have been another chapter in his life and my sense is that he's been buried in one chapter 
You talk about the legend which drew you to this case. And you say towards the end of the book that you and another person were able to blow the legend to kingdom come. Barry, I, I just love you for, for reading that quote. I just I can't tell you how pleased I am that you read that quote. You know, this you just read the climax of the book. Uh, to me, that's the climax of the book. This case was a legend, as I say, and it was a legend that haunted people, that, that, that preoccupied the, the, the hundred people who knew about this were um, deeply troubled all their lives and shadowed by this legend. And that's not the way a democracy works. That's one of the assertions of my book, uh, is that we do not deal with a case like this in this fashion, in an underhanded, shadowy way that creates a legend. And so the, to me, the beauty of the story, the beauty of that line is that after 25 years, uh, through the efforts of the writer Jan Worth, who you mentioned, and a Peace Corps official named Mike Basil, and my own efforts, together we blew the legend to kingdom come. We said, this cannot stay a legend. This must be set down as information in a way that my fellow citizens can judge what it represents. So how do we do that? Well, I think that that's happening now. Happily for me, that's happening now. The book is getting out there. People are getting to read it. Uh, Peace Corps is undergoing some soul-searching generally now on the issue of volunteer risk. The Gardner parents, Deb's parents, who were so quiet for, for a quarter century, have publicly stated that they want justice. I think that certain processes are now in are now happening that they're, that, that are going to lift the cloud from uh, a lot of people's lives. It may even lighten the lives of uh, Dennis Priven and, and Debbie's parents. Who knows? Uh, but I think that things are unfolding, and I, I, I have to say I feel proud about that and happy about it. And, and I, I know this book has hurt a lot of people. I, I, I make it clear this book has hurt uh, uh, some people, the, 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 and Dennis, and, and even members of Deb's family, to, to open this up as hurt and hurt some Peace Corps volunteers, but I, I feel that it's it's worth it. You talk about the Peace Corps evaluation of prospective volunteers' emotional stability to live overseas in the circumstances where volunteers live, which are very, very different from the way we live here in America. Of course. What changes do you believe the Peace Corps is undertaking uh, in that regard now? I don't know, Barry. I'm sorry. Uh, that's outside. Uh, well, let me ask it this way. What changes should the Peace Corps undertake? I feel that uh, I, I want to emphasize that I think Peace Corps is a, just a noble program. Uh, it's just a great thing. It did everything that John Kennedy and that generation wanted Peace Corps to do. It has done. It has enriched our public life. It has given us a better face overseas. And we've created a lot of internationalists in a society that's really uh, self-centered and geocentric. What should Peace Corps be doing? Peace Corps uh, has to deal with more forthrightly with parents and with young people about the issue of risk overseas. Uh, a number of um, cases have come up now this year actually at a time when George Bush wants to expand Peace Corps role, a good thing. Uh, but Peace Corps has to, to wrestle with this issue, and it has to uh, try to 
um, be more honest with volunteers when they do uh, when there are assaults, which are going to be inevitable. There are going to be assaults. It has to be uh, has to set up a more regular process to deal with these types of events. Right now, it tends to brush them under the rug. What happened in this in this horrifying case in 1976, this anomalous case, uh, is actually a pattern. In as much as Peace Corps has not been open about um, risk, it has not. Uh, when a volunteer suffers overseas, it it Peace Corps says, "How is this going to hurt the program?" Rather than what can we do for this young person who has been scarred by this terrible event? Often, when there's an assault, two people are scarred. And in this book, the events that unfolded focus on the scars of Dennis Priven. They don't really focus on the scars on Debbie Gardner. To a limited extent, they focus on the scars suffered by her parents, Wayne and Alice. Yes, it's true that uh, you had a, a brilliant young man from a uh, very tight-knit family in an urban area who was plunged into uh, the South Seas, uh, a, a rural kind of environment, far from home, a man who's lived in Brooklyn all his life. Uh, he could not cope. He could not cope with this overseas experience. And... You know, I don't know what you do to prevent that kind of thing. Peace Corps does take people out of the United States and throws them uh, to the far corners of the earth, and it should do that. And there's a limited uh, extent to which we can assess who will do well and who won't. So when we take that into the future with the current Peace Corps, and you talk about there will be assaults and there will be an individual injured. I feel that right now... In Iraq, we are exposing hundreds of thousands of our young people to uh, potential deadly injury. And we're doing so mistakenly, in my belief, out of a sense that this is our national interest. Well, Peace Corps serves our national interest. And while Peace Corps are, uh, volunteers are not put into situations like Iraq, they are... Uh, they are going to be in sometimes uh, risky situations. And what Peace Corps has to do, and I think it might actually help Peace Corps and help the image of Peace Corps, is to say, guess what? This is valorous activity. And uh, yes, we will do everything we can to minimize risk. We will have, uh, we will withdraw volunteers from risky situations, but we cannot eliminate risk entirely. And I actually think that that will make Peace Corps more of a draw and will emphasize the just the, the the great importance of having people overseas not always carrying guns and occupying other lands. Philip Weiss, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Uh, the most interesting book I've read lately is a book that's out of print and is by Paul P. Rogers. Paul Rogers was the secretary to Douglas MacArthur, uh, a nerd, uh, a young man from the Midwest uh, who wore glasses, was a very quiet, uh, uptight young man who read Catullus at his desk in um, MacArthur's headquarters. And at the end of his life, 
in the 19 uh, uh, in early 1990s he published two volumes about macarthur uh, MacArthur and Sutherland, the good years, MacArthur and Sutherland, the bitter years. Sutherland was MacArthur's chief of staff. These are beautiful volumes. Uh, I just can't emphasize what a gift uh, Paul P. Rogers, a professor of banking and insurance, uh, made to uh, readers and to learning by setting down his youthful experiences at the end of his life. Um, I disagree with the point of view a lot. But just as a record of a, an amazing American experience uh, in World War II, uh, it's just uh, it's just been great to read. So tell uh, us the names of his books again. The names again are MacArthur and Sutherland, The Good Years, and MacArthur and Sutherland, The Bitter Years. And it reflects, it's really about the relationship between MacArthur and his chief of staff, including an adulterous affair that the chief of staff was having in Australia and in New Guinea during the war. Philip Weiss, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. It's been a real pleasure, Barry, and uh, they were great questions. Thank you. Philip Weiss is the author of An American Taboo, A Murder in the Peace Corps. The books he recommends are MacArthur and Sutherland, The Good Years, and MacArthur and Sutherland, The Bitter Years, both books by Paul P. Rogers. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Listening to WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. No country has the right to dictate borders, to bully smaller countries, to intimidate, to coerce, to pursue their own interests. State Department spokesman Ned Price says the U.S. wants to peacefully resolve the conflict in Ukraine, where Russia has amassed troops, prompting fears of a military invasion. President Joe Biden is expected to speak by phone today to Russian President Vladimir Putin at the Kremlin's request. Foreign policy expert Stephen Pfeiffer with the Brookings Institution believes diplomacy could help defuse the situation. It would be better to talk than to have what could turn out to be the biggest land war in Europe since World War II breakout. Russia contends the troops are there for military exercises and denies plans to invade, which Pfeiffer says is possible. I tend to think that this is more towards bluff than an actual intention for a real invasion, because I calculate the cost as significant for Moscow. But Mr. Putin has his own logic. 
Biden already warned Putin the U.S. and European allies will respond with economic sanctions and military support should Russia invade. A group of former executive branch lawyers asked the Supreme Court Wednesday to reject former President Donald Trump's efforts to block his records from the House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack, arguing the need to pursue facts outweighs Trump's claims of executive privilege. New polling shows House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has a nearly 50% job approval rating among independents, putting the California Republican eight percentage points ahead of President Joe Biden. The Gallup poll also found McCarthy's overall approval slightly higher than Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. McCarthy is among those predicting a red wave in 2022 as the GOP.